0: Hello, and welcome to the Humanities Pod. I'm Paul Fleming, and today we're talking about the legacy of Goldwyn Smith, the famous 19th century historian who came to Cornell in 1868 and was the upstart university's first academic star. He lived with the students in Cascadilla Hall. His lectures were printed in newspapers. His scholarship was regarded throughout the world. Cornellians adored him. Goldwyn Smith Hall, opened in 1906, is named in his honor and was the first building dedicated to the humanities at Cornell and the first home of arts and sciences. Goldwyn Smith, in short, has had an immeasurable impact on Cornell. His cosmopolitan motto, above all nations is humanity, still stands inscribed into a bench in front of Goldwyn Smith Hall. And yet his legacy, to put it lightly, is fraught. He's been called, quote, the most vicious anti-Semite in the English speaking world which is truly saying something in the 19th century. His views on race were equally abhorrent and his departure from Cornell was precipitated by the decision to admit women as students, a fatal mistake in his eyes because, quote, all hopes of future greatness would be lost with women at Cornell.
1: I think the fact that that fear exists kind of proves that they know that women are able to make those reasoned arguments that can potentially, you know, threaten support for their own. And so it's really important to recognize that kind of underlying fear that trickles into some of the other views that Goldensmith Smith had, his racist, anti-Semitic views. Is this really about the health of the public sphere in political debate and the future of the nation, or is it about maintaining the power structure and the gender hierarchies that already existed. And I think that's really important to recognize when we think about the implications that that has for us now.
0: The image of Goldwyn Smith in the 21st century, racist, anti-Semite, sexist, is not the tidy image of the beloved statesman and scholar of the early 20th century. We have with us today two young Cornell scholars to help guide us through this complex history. Joanne Lee is a Cornell senior majoring in government with a minor in global Asian studies and law and society. And Angel Negroho is a senior majoring in archeology span and information science. Both Joanne and Angel are part of the exciting new Humanities Scholars Program in Cornell Arts and Sciences and housed at the Society for the Humanities. The Humanities Scholars Program fosters independent, interdisciplinary undergraduate research in the humanities part of the first inaugural cohort of 30 students, Joanne and Angel are here to share some of the fruits of the research on Goldwyn-Smith as part of this cohort. Welcome Joanne and Angel.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Great. So let's begin with what brought you to researching the legacy and views of Goldwyn-Smith. When I arrived at Cornell in 2011 and moved into my office in Goldwyn-Smith Hall, no one said much about him. What was the fascination and impetus for embarking on this research?
2: Yeah, that point about not really knowing about who Goldwyn-Smith was despite his name being on this like really major building on campus really intrigued us. And of course, it was part of the project that we had been assigned to within Professor Gush's class as part of the Humanities Scholar Program. And we were all kind of given, as a starter, the recent Sun article about the removal of Goldwyn-Smith's name from wow. the honorific for professors within Goldwyn-Smith. so we wanted to look more into, OK, what were Goldwyn-Smith's actual views? And you know, do those carry into the values that we have today for Cornell and even the values that were created at the start of the university. And both B and Joanne were looking at a specific piece that Goldsmith had wrote about women, and specifically about women's vote. And we kind of happened to be reading the same article and wanted Mm. to further look into uh, Goldsmith's views on women in general, especially co-education.
0: So what did you find in your research? I mean, particularly keeping it focused on the status of women, what did you think about women's suffrage? What did you think about, as we heard, you know, his view of women at Cornell?
1: Yeah, so there were a few major points that Golden Smith pointed out in the article that Angel mentioned that was published mm. in Macmillan's magazine. First and foremost he believed that women cannot be separated from their emotions and are unfit to make mm. reasonable political decisions. And so this is a quote we pulled from mm. his article. He explicitly mentioned the dangers of quote the influence of a pretty advocate appealing to a jury.
0: Um,
1: unquote. And so mm. we really kind of see what he thought there. And connected to that he um, talked talked about how women should not be participating in the same academic vigor as men because they belong in the quote, feminine sphere. And again, here we have another quote from him, quote, the love of liberty and desire to be governed by the law alone appear to be characteristically male, um, and that to take the female vote would be suicidal. And so it's very, very clear kind of what his stance is on um, in regards to women's suffrage. And connected to that, some of the other points that he made was that, you know, allowing married women to vote would endanger the family because it gives her reason to oppose her husband in the public sphere. And um, as, as you mentioned beforehand, you know, his view on co-education was that it will lower Cornell's prestige um, and the potential for future greatness. And so we really see a consistent view that he held on women's participation in the political sphere and yeah. in education.
0: Yeah, I'd like to pick up on one point there, um, because it seems that the fear is that you know the somewhat typical stereotypical women as irrational women as emotional women whose place should be in the domestic sphere but also a worry but then about you know the influence potential influence of women on their male counterparts on um in other words there's a certain persuasiveness in this and the, the fear of the opposing their husbands in public i'd like to hear a little bit more about that Thoughts yeah that?
2: actually there's an example that came to mind like immediately when you said like the, that bit of persuasion yeah where yeah. kind of this opinion that like like they don't have rational thought but they can be used to persuade and kind of like yeah. convince people by other means and mm. one of like the quotes that Goldwood Smith had on Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony because they actually came to Cornell a few times mm. and talked about the value of co-education with Ezra Cornell and were like in talks about trying to implement co-education at Cornell um there was a quote from Goldwood Smith when the the two had come to visit that they had essentially like poured butter on his head in order to convince Ezra Cornell to <laughs> allow <a> women <laughs> and that by no other means could they have rationally like had a debate or like convinced Ezra Cornell and that it was like through force or through like, their nature as a woman, rather than you know being seen as equal.
0: That's incredible. Ezra Cornell did turn Cornell into co-education at that time. Uh, so can tell us a little bit about, you know, the debates at that or why Cornell did go co-ed and very early?
2: Yeah, yeah. So something that interesting that we, like, discovered over this process was how a lot of the other founders of Cornell at this time, Ezra Cornell, A.D. White, Henry Sage, hmm. were staunch supporters of co-education hmm. and really wanted to enfranchise women by, like, giving them education. In particular, Ezra Cornell and his own history, as, like, some people at Cornell may know, is that Ezra Cornell did not have an elite education hmm. compared to some of his other counterparts. Um, he grew up poor. He only, like, had, like, about, like, a fifth grade education, hmm. and then um, later was, like, self-taught, and then only like grew to a status later in life after, like, moving to Ithaca. And then, like, saw Cornell as a way to really like, enfranchise people like himself, who grew up as farmers and did not hmm. have as yeah. so much opportunity into education. And one of those people, like, that were disenfranchised with education happened to be women. So hmm. part of that was, okay, who are the other people that also deserve an education? And in addition, like, A.D. White and Henry Sage before they came into Cornell also had histories of either being strongly influenced by the women in their lives and wanting to enfranchise them and make them economically independent and allow them more agency like within the world.
0: Because that brings up an issue that, you know, a hot button issue here. Debates about goldensmith his racism, his sexism, anti-Semitism. They're reminiscent of other hotly debated disputes right now, for example, regarding the founding fathers who on the one hand proclaim all men are created equal and on the other only allowed property white males to vote and shrine slaves into law, and that was basically codifying as perfectly lawful, and themselves own slaves. How do you, as scholars, deal with these contradictions, particularly when people appeal to well, you need to look at it in the historical context? In the historical context of the 19th century, it's not the historical context of the 20, now the 21st century. Were Smith's views, you know, were they so outside the pale? Were they true outliers? Or how do you reconcile kind of your position as 21st century scholars looking at a 19th century situation?
1: Yeah, I think it may be you know, easy to dismiss his views and regard it as in keeping with the times. Mm. Um, but he was, you know, actually regarded as a man ahead of his times in many ways. And Golden he was Golden Smith was Golden Smith, yes. <laughs> and he was he was praised for his, you know, intellect and his insight in mm. that manner. But keep in mind that, you know, the women's suffrage movement was going on just yeah. a few miles away yep. in Seneca Falls. And so, you know, it's really insufficient to kind of swear a hands and kind of sweep it under the rug yeah. over there. And so I think it can be easy to argue that his accomplishments as a scholar kind of balances out his, some of the more problematic Mm. views. But, you know, I think our values are constantly changing. And regardless of when we kind of came to the realization that, you know, diversity is important to our community Mm. and for our collective growth, I think it should be held at a particular weight. I don't think it's fair to kind of put those two at the same level. And I think it's important to add extra weight to the values that we hold as a community now and be comfortable with looking back and yeah. making re-evaluations and making distinctions between, yeah. okay, he was this kind of person who held these conflicting views personally and, you know, academically.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to pick up something you said there, Joanne. I mean, Seneca Falls, which is right up the block, is the heart of the women's suffrage movement. And the first famous convention was 1848, and it was 20 years before Goldwyn Smith came to Cornell. Mm-hmm. There was a movement afoot, and it was right here in the neighborhood. Um, so one can say that you know he may have stood for some of the views of the time, but there by no means were these the only views of the time. And in exactly. fact, there were very powerful voices, these abolitionist voices, women's suffrage voices. So I'd wanna highlight that point because I think it's really important that you said that here, and, you know, and Ezra Cornell being a counterpoint as far as the view on, on women's suffrage and women's education. But this brings us to archival research, and that's a crucial part of the Humanities Scholars Program, especially because Cornell is so rich in unique historical, literary, scientific, and artistic works. But as you know, archival research often comes with the unexpected. You're hoping to find something, and you don't find it, or you're not expecting something and suddenly it's there. And I'm always interested when you do archival work and you do research, can you tell us a few of the unanticipated things that you stumbled upon, something that emerged in your research that you really weren't expecting to find? Uh,
2: So one of the things that I wanted to highlight, and part of like our research process was really just going to the digital archives that are on Cornell Library Mm. and clicking through pages like during this time and seeing, you know, like, what's a good representation of student life right now? Like what's going on with the students? We found like a lot of pictures of student classes at the time. Really interesting perspective of like, campus. Only Moral and McGraw Hall like, existed at the time, right. or even just Morrill Hall. Um, and one of the things that came up randomly was this piece from the Cornell era, which was a student newspaper at the time. And this was a publication from 1870. And it was kind of getting out student voices and sort of like getting a temperature check on student opinions at the time. Yeah. And during this time, there was the debate about co-education going on, whether or not the school should admit women. And it seemed like they had asked a few students, like, okay, uh, what do you think about this decision? And there was some interesting interesting comments from like who appeared to be students where they predicted, oh, if we admit women, then we're either going to have ladies who are thus educated through the whole four years of college course either spend their period in having lovely time with young gentlemen, thus often destroying the advantages of both for completing the course, or come out those strong-bodied women with strong-minded views of the Elizabeth Cady Stanton notoriety. So it's really interesting because at that same time, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is like in contact with Ezra Cornell and is having these discussions with him While over here, we have students who disagree with Elizabeth Cady Stanton views or really are more worried about her character and her attitude and kind of being faced with a woman in the public sphere who has strong minded views or alternatively feeling like they would be distracted from their studies because a woman is in the classroom.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, particularly the strong-minded, what do you think he means with the? I mean, we can't get into the mind of this 1870 student, but what he means with this strong-minded views I mean, with the perception of women, particularly what it says about men as far as their ability to beat, but what, I mean, what happened to the rational character of men that they're advocating for as well? Any thoughts on that?
2: No, I think like I wanted to cover like Joanne's point earlier about Goldman Smith's views on the woman's vote and how the worry was that the woman would like oppose like her husband within mm. the family. And again, like there's this worry of, oh, like a woman with strong minded views would be someone that could go considerably like go against me. So I think like really the worry is not oh we're gonna have like this angry woman on our hands, but someone mm. that like I have to face in the world, and there must be some sort of fear associated with that.
1: Yeah. yeah, and kind of going off of that, if I may, yep. you know, if you really look at the logic of the arguments that these folks are making, mm-hmm. and if it was truly true that, you know, women were incapable of making reasonable arguments, you know, it wouldn't matter if they publicly opposed their husbands, right. because, you know, they would be humiliating themselves. Right. But right on. I think the fact that that fear exists mm. kind of proves that they know that women are able to make those reasoned arguments that can potentially, you know, threaten support for their own. And so I think it, it's really important to recognize that kind of underlying fear. And I think that trickles into some of the other views that Goldensmith Smith had, um, his racist, yeah. anti-Semitic views. Yeah. Is this really about the health of the public sphere in political debate and the future of the nation? Or is it about maintaining the power structures and the gender hierarchies that already existed and I think that's really important to recognize when we think about the implications that that has for us now.
0: Yeah brilliant brilliant and Joanne anything you found in the archive in your research that you weren't expecting?
1: Yeah, so I think for me, um, you know, in addition to what Angel said, I think just purely from the perspective of a student in the 21st century, Mm. I think seeing those very letters that Elizabeth Cady Stanton sent to Ezra Cornell was kind of shocking for me because oftentimes when you're learning about history and all of these historical figures, they almost kind of seem like mythical figures. Mm. And seeing two monumental figures in correspondence is kind of like worlds colliding. And it kind of reminded me of this simple fact that yes, these are real people who coexisted at the same yeah. time and seeing kind of the, the discussions that they had and reading Elizabeth Cady Stanton's tone in the letter mm. really animates the, the behind-the-scenes discussions that took place and it really adds another layer to what you would imagine went on um, that led to where we are now. So so the letters were really, really shocking and interesting and interesting is not the right word yeah. but really insightful for yeah. me.
0: As you say, I mean, not only did that they inhabit at the same time, the same space. I mean, again, mm-hmm. Seneca Falls is right up the road from Ithaca. So I like wonder if you could talk a bit about the research process itself, sources, materials, archives. What did you learn by going into the archives and the importance of the humanities research for these types of questions that hit at the heart of identity of institutions like Cornell? I mean, this is something that all institutions are kind of going through right now, working through their past That that is often a very fraught, complicated past of the 19th century, these founding moments.
2: Yeah, so we first got introduced um, to the archives like within Professor Gosha's class via Lance Heidegg, librarian at the Cornell Rare and Manuscript Collection, who unfortunately passed away last semester. Mm-hmm. And he was really instrumental in directing us to the digital resources mm-hmm. for the archives. I mm-hmm. mean, um, like had this whole session in class and we all like really appreciated his enthusiasm and like excitement about the archives. So during last spring, when we were all online, like it was much harder to go into the library, right. get appointments and actually like, look at the archives physically. So luckily Cornell has a really like vast digital collection mm. of like all of their older like, letters manuscripts the letters that we found like from Elizabeth Katie Stanton they had all been digitized and were oh, put like onto the Cornell Library so that made the work a lot easier yeah. but a lot of the issue sometimes with like these resources is there is so much of it so yeah. there's not always like, a really descriptive like, information about it or title or like easy way to search it up so a lot of the time what I was doing is I was going into the era of like 1870s <laughs> and then just clicking through pages and seeing you know what's going to come up because mm-hmm. I was Really sure like, what would be in the archives in the first place, right. and then one of like the shocking things that we kind of also found was going through like, photos of this time as well, where I had mentioned like class photos of students. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see like after eighteen seventy two and the creation of Sage Hall, the women's dormitory, where like after the university officially admitted women, you kind of start to see diversity grow within the classes, like ever mm-hmm. so like slowly inching forward. So you the can theaters. just
0: see that in the photos themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. Same thing. I, I think the photos really were illustrative of mm-hmm. the impact and you know kind of explaining the visuals of those photos like in 1877 you see a class photo that's just all men yeah. Um, and then we see a photo of, I think it's seven, yeah, seven female students mm-hmm. in 1887. And from 1890 onwards, you slowly see more women in these class photos that are growing in number. And so I think having the visual illustration of the timeline yeah. was really helpful in, in seeing the impact um, and the, the progression of the history there.
2: And also, like, back to the question of the importance of humanities research. Um, I think, like, this class in particular and, like, this whole process of being part of the Humanities Scholars Program has really just like opened my own thinking to humanities research mm-hmm. and really exposed me to what that involves because kind of beginning of the process like I had no idea like, what humanities research really entailed mm-hmm. and I think the point with identity and understanding who we are as a college and our history is really key to that because I meet so many other students especially students like myself who are not from Ithaca really are unaware of like the long histories that Ithaca and Cornell are associated with so being able to take a class like History of Cornell Exposes uh, you to that, but also doing things like this where you actually see that not only like, does this history exist, but like it's still like held within Cornell. Like these are documents that Cornell has, and it really makes them physical. It really makes them like this is something that you had to work for. Like, I think like me and Joy had this conversation yesterday where mm-hmm. we kind of abstractly used to think about the women's rights movement versus when we're seeing these documents, like these conversations had to occur among Elizabeth Cady Stay and like they had to actually like physically come to Cornell and like Seneca Falls and have these discussions and it really makes it much more tangible than it is just like from a history class
0: so one final question I want to note that in December 2020 the Cornell University Board of Trustees voted to remove Goldwyn Smith's name from the honorific titles of 12 professors but at the same time declined to rename the building itself Goldwyn Smith Hall any thoughts on the decision of the board of trustees, how to handle such situations going into the future because this is this is at every university, Princeton, Amherst, it's everywhere. Um, so kind of from your research from your, your engagement with this one particular issue, any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there will always be quote unquote pragmatic um, considerations that go into these decisions whether it be you now financial, political, but I think, you know, going back to that discussion about the values that we hold as a community, you know, what does this say to our students who already are struggling with imposter syndrome Mm. at Cornell, who are already struggling to feel a sense of belonging and acceptance at this institution? What does it mean to continue to hold this very visible legacy of someone who didn't want them here, even after unearthing and learning about the views that this figure had about these groups? And, you know, yes, it can be argued that, you know, keeping the name of the building is a process of recognizing, you know, some parts of our history that Mm -hmm. we are not too proud of. But if that really was the main concern, if if the concern really was, you know, embracing some of the not-so-proud moments, the priority should be on how do we move on from this in a way that does not continue to harm the impacted groups. And mm-hmm. I think there are ways to achieve both. So mm-hmm. it can be, you know, it, we can rename the building and have a plaque or a section dedicated to explaining why it was renamed mm-hmm. and the history behind it and the and yeah. the debates that went on. And so, you know, yes, the removal of Goldensmith's name from the honorifics, is progress, but I think this process of reckoning with this history is incomplete without renaming the building. Mm -hmm. And I think those are some of the things that we should be keeping in mind in the continuing discussions about similar issues.
2: Yeah, another thing to consider within all of that is like, what does it mean to have someone's name on a building and like especially a mm. name on the building within a university, within an institution and kind of back to the beginning where we talked about the bench that is outside Goldman-Smith and the yeah. quote from Goldman-Smith, above all nations is humanity. That humanity was not all humans. It was a humanity that was only white, yeah. only male, mm-hmm. only Christian, and even yeah. a very specific subset of Europe. So how is that humanity itself? Mm-hmm. And I think we talked a lot about how, you know, we need to wear values now in the present and like hold them equal to, you know, where we were at Cornell's founding. But even then, we've discussed how like Henry Sage, A.D. White, and of course, Ezra Cornell had very different values to Goldwyn Smith. And I think at the core that we all continue to recognize today at Cornell is any person, any study. And that's something that was purposeful from ADY. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a random quote <laughs> or random gimmick for Cornell advertising, <laughs> but truly that ADY and as a Cornell fully intended for any person, no matter their gender, to mm-hmm. come and attend and get an education. And if That continues to be a value that we hold dear at Cornell and something that really isn't reflected within Goldman Smith.
0: And you know, sorry to go off a little bit on uh, off a different track, but since you're talking about the Humanities Scholars program and humanities research, any you wanna give us insights into what your final projects are gonna be for your capstone projects? Do you know already?
2: I can go (laughs) first. Yeah. Yeah. Both of our projects are very like in flux. So I think so my project has changed quite a bit but I'm also an information science major so I've been really interested in kind of the intersection between technology and like humanities research Mm. in particular with my archaeology major so right now I'm investigating like pseudo-archaeology communities and pseudo-archaeological like kind of movements where we see a lot of things nowadays that have entered the public sphere where people are really convinced that Atlantis exists or other conspiracy theories associated with the past especially considering uh, who was like within In the Americas, kind of before Columbus, or other theories about ancient civilizations, the pyramids, uh, civilizations in South America, and kind of these conspiracy theories that are not really well supported by the archaeological evidence or a lot of these communities that are very convinced that a certain thing had to happen. And I'm hoping to kind of do an analysis of this like online communities that exist particularly on Twitter or other like online spaces where a lot of this spreads like really quickly among Mm -hmm. people that are like are interested in history, but then also um, may have an interest within like white supremacist ideology where a lot of like these histories have become like twisted and turned into. Support of believing that there is kind of like this one race that is allowed to like be in the Americas, or the idea that it was like only the white race that was responsible for like certain technological progress. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to figure out a little bit more about that. But uh, right now I'm kind of doing like a graphical analysis of. Uh, these people like on Twitter and who they're Mm -hmm. connected to and kind of how the flow of information of like archaeology theories like works on Twitter.
1: That is so cool. I'm always mesmerized whenever Angel talks about archaeology or whenever Mm -hmm. other students of the program talk about their research because they're pursuing such interesting and like fascinating topics with so much depth and passion and you can really see that when they talk about their projects. So I always just enjoy listening to Mm. other people's projects. Um, My project, so I'm a government major, Mm -hmm. and I've always been interested in the concept of democracy. And so whenever there's a discussion about democratization, it seems like there is always an intervention of some sort of like Western state. Mm. And the conversation, even regarding democratization in non-Western states always involves some sort of mention of a Western savior almost. Mm. And so I wanted to look at the current moment and the solidarity between Southeast Asian democratization movements that are mm. going on right now, so in Thailand and Myanmar, and the solidarity with East Asian um, civic societies, mm-hmm. so including you know South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, yeah. and looking at that intra-Asian regional solidarity yeah. and how that's impacting the movement in Southeast Asia through something called you know, the Milk Tea Alliance mm-hmm. and, and so on, and, and histories of democratization in South Korea and how that is presented in the current moment. And I think one of the most valuable moments that came in my research this semester was, I was always trained in social scientific research. Mm-hmm. So my conclusion would always lead into, okay, Where do we go from now? So policy recommendations, action plans, things like that. And as someone who's not so well-read in Asian studies or the region, I really had trouble grappling with, okay, what's the direction that I move towards from this research? And I've had a lot of conversations with professors in the Asian studies department. And one of the things that they told me was, you know, there is so significance and value in just recognizing things about this moment and you know recognizing that there is the solidarity within Asia Mm -hmm. within the region without you know external forces and that really hit me because I always was trained in thinking okay I have to create something new about the future and they said it's completely fine not to know where to go from here because policymakers are struggling with it that's why we're talking about it and so I think there's a comfort that I gained from just knowing that it's already completely valid and valuable to just recognize what is happening. And I think that really is the beauty of humanity's research mm-hmm. and just really observing and embracing and internalizing.
0: Great. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Angel and Joanne, for this conversation. It's been really enlightening. Thank,
2: Thank you, you so much. <laughs> it's
0: been a real pleasure. We've been talking today with Joanne Lee and Angel Negrojo. Cornell undergraduates who are part of the inaugural cohort of the Humanities Scholars Program, housed in the Society for the Humanities. Their work is just the tip of the iceberg. In the years to come, we have a lot more to learn from the students in the Humanities Scholar Program. The Humanities Pod is a production of Cornell's Society for the Humanities, introducing you to some of the new work, the current conversations, and the latest ideas of humanists at and around Cornell. The Pod is produced by Tyler Lewis. spicer Our music is from the continuing story of Counterpoint by David Borden performed and recorded at Cornell by Mother Mallet's Portable Masterpiece Company. Our thanks go to Cornell's College of Arts and Sciences, and especially the Cayuga Nation, the Gayakono, on whose traditional homelands Cornell is located.